This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Woodwoes, Owlmen and the Morag, lesser known cryptids of Britain and Ireland, part one. <sighs> oh, guys, it's October! Spooky season. Um, Now, obviously, over the last couple of years, we've dedicated October to doing sort of spooky episodes, and we found that they've been popular with our listeners, and they're certainly popular uh, with Jules and I. We we get very excited every year. Um, So this year is going to be no different. Um, So this is the first episode of our spooky season specials. Um, where we basically talk about all sorts of strange and wonderful things, stranger and more wonderful than the regular topics that we talk about. In the past, we've talked about cursed objects, cannibalism, ghosts, and serial killers. (laughs) Um, And this year, uh, as you might have guessed, we are starting the race with cryptids, which... The moment I said that, I can just imagine I'm just standing at a racing line. I look over and there's just Bigfoot, Mothman. <laughs> yeah, in case anybody doesn't know what we mean when we say the word cryptid, and this isn't yeah. that unusual. I said cryptid yeah. in front of Alan the other day and he went, what? What's, a crypt- What's that? Is that a made yes. up word? Like, well, technically all words are made up, but I'm a great person to live with. Um <laughs> um yeah a cryptid basically in this context we're we're expanding the general definition yeah generally a cryptid is an animal of uh dubious reality and origins which may well be um an unidentified animal living in an area you would not expect it to live in Mm -hmm. it may well be a um a sort of like piece of folk mythology which is certainly one definition that we're expanding it to. Generally, in terms of the sort of scientific, fringe scientific community, a cryptid is an animal which does not have substantial evidence as to its existence, but there are many, many sightings of it. So there's a chance that something exists that's given rise to this body of folk myth. Yes. Um, And there have been, you know, cases of things which have been considered to be cryptids in the past or to sort of be fictional, Um, which have actually then sort of been proven in some capacity to be real. Um, I mean, it's not really so much a cryptid, but if you think of things like the giant squid, um, you know, in fact, a lot of creatures from the deep, (laughs) people have been like, that's not actually a real thing. Um, And it has been. (laughs) Yeah, and up until, I think it was up until the 19th, 30s or 40s the snow leopard was considered a cryptid and would was just a folk myth and then people actually were kind of like yeah. no the snow leopard exists uh, same with the uh, the clouded leopard which lives in the rainforest um the okapi which is also known as the pygmy's mm-hmm. jungle donkey which branched off very early on from sort of the giraffe family so yeah they absolutely exist um things like the tasmanian wolf as well turned out to not be extinct that's another definition it might be an animal which is not in fact extinct yes yeah absolutely um but usually when people say cryptids uh very specific things come to mind um as i've said you know uh bigfoot mothman the loch ness monster etc uh 
But this week, um, as we've said in the title, we're going to be looking at some of the lesser known cryptids that are found in Britain and in Ireland. Uh, yes. Now, if you think that my research for Harker and Blackburn has nettled <laughs> you some of the weird and wonderful creatures we're going to talk about today, um, and in our next episode as well, in fact, uh, you're not <laughs> actually wrong. Uh, however, it was also inspired by a recent book which I received an arc of called The United States of Cryptids, which mm -hmm. is basically a journey across America looking at different folk legends and things. Mm -hmm. Um, it's by J.W. Ocker, who also wrote Cursed Objects, which initially gave me the idea to do an episode on Cursed Objects, which, you know, turned out to be really popular. Yes. Thank you, J.W. Uh, Ocker. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for giving us so much inspiration. So I'm, I'm just this is a little plug for this person's book because they are very, very entertaining books. They're not too serious, but they do kind of give you as much of the fact as is possible and a lot of the folk legends. So, yeah. yeah. OK, that's fantastic. But they were talking about American cryptids and I'm like, the UK's got cryptids. The UK's got loads yes, of cryptids. A lot, a lot and a lot of cryptids. Um, and some you will literally never find out about unless you are in a very specific area. Um, now, obviously we can't go through all of them, uh, but today we are going to take a look at a few of them, um, look at how likely they are to actually be potentially real, what their backstory is, you know, how long have there been sightings, etc. Um, and sort of a few accounts of people who have claimed to see them. And we'll probably give you our opinion as to how likely it is that there is a genuine creature or what other yeah. <laughs> explanation we think there might be. Yes. However, that's opinion and it's for entertainment and educational purposes and maybe to inspire some writing, but we're certainly not saying, yes, get out your cryptid hunting gear and go and look in these places. <laughs> yes. Unless you want to, but you know, yeah. <laughs> if that's on you, that's not... <laughs> Disclaimer, guys. Okay. A new a new generation, new black uh, Harker and Blackthorn <laughs> just getting started. I'm not going to lie, I would love to go on a cryptid hunting trip with you, Jules. Oh, I think that would be brilliant. We should absolutely do that. Yeah, um, we absolutely will. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, should we get going? <laughs> yes, let's. Um, so let's begin uh, with the Morag. Now, um, perhaps the most famous cryptid um, of all time, particularly in the UK, is uh, the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, which we're not going to discuss today. We've discussed Nessie in previous episodes. Um, but what you might not be aware of is that there are many lochs in Scotland um, and in Ireland, and quite a few of them have cryptids attached to them as well. Um, in fact, there are so many that we are only we're going to confine ourselves to talking about one, because if we talked about all the cryptids and all the lochs, we would be here... <laughs> For a while. Uh, now, Morag is a lake-dwelling monster alleged to live in Loch Mora, which is a freshwater loch in Lochavar in the Highlands. So recorded, recorded sightings of Morag date back to 1824 um, and continued pretty steadily up until 1981. So that's a pretty staggering amount of time. Um, many of these sightings actually involved multiple witnesses. So it's not just that one person saw them and then another person saw it at a different time. Several people would see Morag at once during one incident, yeah. which is kind of exciting, actually. 
and of the the 34 sort of i won't say verifiable but the 34 main accounts that we have got mm. written down which we're not going to go through no. we cannot <laughs> go through 34 accounts um but they are they're pretty coherent they agree on a lot of major points which is quite interesting and there are there is some evidence uh, within the folk tradition of the area of a creature having lived in that yeah. particular loch for a long time um but a, a little bit like Loch Ness, mm-hmm. where you get to the modern sightings of Loch Ness um, and the modern sightings of Loch Mora, there is a gap. So you have this this oral tradition yeah. of folk record of something lives in the loch kind of thing, and with description, and then it drops off around sort of the yeah. sort of um, seventeen to eighteen hundreds, and then you get yes. the interest <laughs> in the folk tradition taking off again in the eighteen hundreds. And people have forgotten this body of myth from before. And it only really got dug up again sort of in around sort of 1910. And it's really interesting how all of this, the points are kind of on, on things like appearance and stuff kind of coincide. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the, the other thing to remember is that, um, as Jules said, this interest in folk tradition and things like that that began um, sort of around you know, around most of Europe, but in in uh, Britain and Scotland um, and Ireland during this time, uh, during the Victorian period, meant that actually accounts started to be written down because suddenly there was also this surge of kind of science. And if you're doing science, you wrote it down. You know, that's the difference. Um, so you start yes. to get these accounts. So it's very possible that there were actually other accounts, other sightings, um, but that they were not really credited, that they were not written down. It could have just been something among very sort of local sort of areas, local knowledge, um, not something which was recorded so seriously. And that's something we always need to consider whenever um, we kind of look at any sort of cryptid things is that um, you've got to ask yourself, okay, but why were things written down? When were they written down? Um, And what about the things that weren't? So and who was doing yeah, the and who was doing the writing? What what was um, their agenda? <laughs> I think the other thing to consider with the folk tradition is that it does come a little bit from the school of everybody knows that, as in people have been talking about it long yeah. enough, and the stories keep getting repeated, but everybody knows yes. them, so they don't see the need to write them down because everybody already yeah, knows absolutely. them. Now, Morag um, is described as a serpent-like creature some 20 feet in length. Um, Yes. To give you an idea of 20 feet in length, what's 20 feet in metres? Hold on a second. My maths betrays me. 20 feet in metres. So it's about six metres. Yeah, so um, that's about three doors stacked on top of each other if you kind of want an idea yeah or a bit longer but yeah a bit longer. <laughs> that depends on the door <laughs> this is one of the things as well with a lot of these um water dwelling type cryptids it's quite difficult to assess size because they're underwater um, yes anyway there's a there's a great account from 1969 and this is the best known encounter for Loch mora and that mm-hmm. is two men duncan mcdonald and William Simpson accidentally hit the creature while cruising along the loch in their speedboat. This caused Morag to rise out of the water and attack the boat. Quite understandably, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, 
Anyway, McDonald fended it. McDonald, sorry, fended it off with an oar, while Simpson fired two shots at it with his shotgun. The creature sank out of sight and apparently swam away. They described it as being 25 to 30 feet long, brown with rough skin. Three humps rose out of the water at around 18 inches above the lock's surface at each, the top of each hump, and it had a head a foot wide, held 18 inches out of the water. Um, so. Yeah, that's that's no, not a that's small a, beastie. That's a very sizable beastie. What I love is is the kind of the precision of of each of the like eighteen inches out of the water and stuff like that. And I love the fact that this would have been calculated based on all right. So how big was it? Oh, it was about this big. All right, measure that. All right, so it was about. <laughs> yes, so it could have been bigger or smaller. Yes, or... <laughs> I think we can honestly say that they didn't accidentally mistake a large eel, though. And you know, let's face it, eels can be sort of five or six feet. Yeah, it, um, they can. Eels can be very, very large, um, and actually very, very scary. Uh, <laughs> if you've got several of them, um, you could mistake that for something larger. Um, but yes, I, I think it's fair to say that you would have to really, really use your imagination or be exaggerating a lot to to go from an eel to a twenty-five to thirty-foot long yeah. uh, creature. <laughs> we. <laughs> Yeah, we hit a European eel with our speedboat and it got pissed off and attacked the boat. It's not very likely with eels, I'm afraid. Yes. I'm not going to go off on a, a side quest here about eels because eels are very weird. They, they are. Can, you know, they can move across land and stuff. And yeah, but it's not that. They're frightening. Anyway, um, we've got then got another one. Uh, in 1977, a Miss M. Lindsay took a pair of photos which allegedly show Morag passing across the loch. Uh, the first picture shows a large humped back, while the second shows two smaller humps. Yes. Um, bear in mind, in 1977, the sort of camera she's likely to have had access to. So I don't think it was like a top of the no, line absolutely type thing not. Um, and the, this is the thing that always gets me whenever you get any kind of sort of loch or, or sea creature or river creature because you know we have as we've said there are lots of them I mean there's even a, a creature which is attributed to the river Thames and stuff like that um, the fact of the matter is that um, you, there's always humps so it's like oh we, we, we saw a hump um, and a lot of the time those humps could very much easily just be seals um, and other things uh, but it is it is interesting yeah. I mean regardless. it's quite unlikely to be a seal in Loch Mora considering where the loch is <laughs> yes but, uh, yeah yeah no okay. yes in Loch Mora certainly yeah but um, um so anyway th let's have a look is it possible well Loch Mora is 11.3 miles long it has a surface area of 10.3 mm -hmm. square miles and it is 1,017 feet deep at its deepest point with a mean depth, so an overall mm -hmm. sort of, uh, you know, at its shallowest to all the yeah. way through. It's sort of like 284 feet, um, which may not seem very much because 284 feet on land isn't that far. 284 yeah. feet underwater... Is pretty far. Is, is, is <laughs> definitely far. And the, the thing with a lot of the locks is that they have dark water because peat runs off the hills yeah and into the the water source and it colors the water quite dark yeah um so you wouldn't see be able to see down very far it's not a clear body of water unlike some of the irish luffs which are actually quite clear yeah um and still manage to have their own their own water beasties um so yeah this makes it one of the deepest freshwater lakes in the uk in fact i think it was the deepest until 
they discovered that there were areas of the sound which were actually a bit deeper. Okay. Um, it's also pretty full of fish, so salmon, trout, eels, as we said, etc., and smaller fish. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, it could support a large aquatic predator. It couldn't support an entire pod of whales, for example. No. Um, or anything that was going to be predating on the fish to the point where there just wouldn't be enough. You know, whatever it was would just die off. Yeah. But theoretically, you could have one in there. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, now, the case against it, um, as with pretty much all Loch monsters and Loch monsters, uh, no one has found any real evidence that stands up to wheel scrutiny um, or any evidence which has been released to the public domain. Um, it would have to be yes. a very unusual solitary creature to live for hundreds of years fairly undetected in one lake. But then again, look at the Greenland shark. Yes, a uh, quick mention of the Greenland shark. Um... I'm sure I've mentioned this before, and I've certainly mentioned it in a Harker and Blackthorn book, mm. but basically the reason that creatures die is because they need to evolve. Yeah. So your lifespan is determined by your telomeres. Yes. Your telomeres are you know, your little things in your cells that basically sort of give you a rough sort of how long you're going to live because that's how, long, how often your species needs to make another evolutionary adjustment, if you yeah. like. Then you've got the Greenland shark, <laughs> which has not evolved for millions of years. It basically it arrived and it was kind of like, yeah, this is good and I don't need to change for anyone. <laughs> um, I think they have found Greenland sharks that have lived to be 634 years old. There are probably others because it doesn't have a limit on its telomeres like many other species do. Yeah. Um, and the reason the ones die sort of at six centuries, etc., or, or older, is because their teeth wear out and they starve. Yeah. But they're not dying of old age like other things are. They're, they're basically not aging, which is quite terrifying if you think about it. It's sort of... Isn't it the same with crocodiles as well? Yeah, I don't think they get to be quite that old, but some of them, theoretically... I mean, they've got a very, very long... They've got a long lifespan on the telomeres, basically. Yeah, and um, most the of them... they shark does not... Yeah. Do die because they just haven't. <laughs> There's a limit <laughs> to their teeth, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. So but, that's why um, crocodiles actually do well in um, captivity, weirdly enough. Yes. Um, so, I mean, you've got to look a bit sort of askance at anything that hasn't needed to evolve for millions of years. Yes. Really. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. so, yes. Well, it is possible that there is some kind of creature which doesn't actually need to eat. A large amount um and yeah has basically survived because it has very long telomeres yes i think the other thing we could theoretically consider is that there is some evidence that a lot of these um locks and luffs etc do kind of interconnect sub- in a subterranean way mm. and we don't actually have the equipment that can sort of penetrate the gloom down there um, and there's the funding issue as well, which is kind of a big thing um, to actually find out. What, I mean, if you think about it, just looking at, I mean, not Loch Ness, but um, Loch Mora, which is technically smaller than Loch Ness, mm-hmm. is uh, is the fact that that's a huge area to try and cover just to find, you know, relatively small cracks in rocks that might be sort of subterranean tunnels that interconnect some yeah. of them. 
Um, it's really interesting, particularly when you've got things like Loch Ness, which is on one of the fault lines through the Great Glen, and there are other locks on that mm. fault line as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it, it's a case of, yes, perhaps there is something in there. Perhaps it's a cryptid, something that hasn't been identified. And perhaps it's not there all the time because it goes off to other hunting grounds where it goes off elsewhere, mating, etc. Yeah. So um, it's possible. The <laughs> other thing with a lot of, and not necessarily uh, with uh, Morag, um, or even necessarily the Loch Ness Monster, um, is that there is the potential that with certain bodies of water which do have myths attached to them, that there was actually a creature that was there. And it could very well have been something like a whale, um, or, uh, you know, because we have had cases of sort of whales coming up river or sharks coming up river. We've had whales in the Thames and stuff like that. If you get up to, Scot uh, to Scotland, it's not impossible that you could have a, um, you know, an orca or something like that as well, which could have, which could get into certain bodies of water, um, perhaps in the past where it, they were connected to the sea um, or they weren't. And that this is what started some of the kind of myths in that you'd have a group of people who would have never seen a creature quite like this before. Um, they collect these kinds of stories and these stories sort of continue to live on. So it is possible that there is a true account, basically, um, of an animal which we, we would recognise now, but which they didn't recognise then. Um, that no longer lives there because it's died or it escaped or etc. Um, but whose kind of presence has stayed within the memory of the local area for a, for a long time. Yeah, entirely possible. Um, so, I mean, they've definitely found sharks in the River Ness, for example. Yeah. So there is a chance it's not impossible. Yeah. Okay, moving on to our second one. Okay. <laughs> um, this is this is Woodwoes. Woodwoes. Um, Believe it or not, there are two candidates for the title of British Bigfoot. <laughs> I'm not yanking your chain here. This is something yes, that's real. Yes, um, it is not merely a Canadian um, or American cryptid. There have been sightings all across the world of uh, sort of big-footed creatures or, or sort of, yeah, yeti kind of things. Or, or as they sometimes call them, sasquatches. Um, there have been sightings in Greece, India, China, lots and lots of other places, including England, Scotland, Wales, and in Ireland. Now, the, the Woodwose, or Wild Man of the Woods, is a bipedal primate that looks quite human, except that its body is completely covered in fur, and its face, I think, I think the features are kind of more primate-like. Yeah. From descriptions and from woodcuts and things, that they're, they're sort of human enough to make us go, it's a human, but ape enough to make us go, hang on, that's not human. Yeah, it's the uncanny valley situation going yeah, on there. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So the woodwose lives in thick wooded areas, as the name would suggest, um, and sometimes in family units. Now, what I find interesting is sightings go back to at least the medieval era. Woodwose can be seen in a, as a matter of course in many 13th and 14th century manuscripts and tapestries, and they're usually doing some pretty funny stuff, I've got to tell you. <laughs> um, the eponymous hero in the 14th century poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, had a brief encounter with them. So I think it's line 751, it talks about Sir Gawain and the Woodwose, which is really <laughs> interesting. Just hanging out with so them. It's kind of like... <laughs> and, and 
you know, before anyone goes, yeah, but okay, it's the medieval era and people didn't really know anything, I would like to point out that there are medieval manuscripts in High Welsh, which prove that the lynx were still alive and part of the local flora mm. and fauna um, during the 13th and 14th centuries, when prior to people sort of pointing this out, prior to historians and linguists pointing this out, um, we have been told categorically that the lynx probably died out in you know, the, the British Isles uh, around about the ninth century. And the thing is, it's simply not true. There's a good chance the lynx never died out, but it's still out there. Still slinking about. Um, yeah. So the woodwos uh, are omnivorous, apparently, um, but generally they will not confront humans. Although, of course, there are some stories of them trying to abduct young women. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting that when we get onto the sightings in a minute, mm. many of the sightings are by young women. It seems to have been a curiosity issue that made the woodwose kind of pause, apparently. <laughs> um, but I do think the stories, and you know, there's there's medieval pit illuminations and things where, you know, a woman's being abducted by a woodwose, etc. Yeah. Um, some of that could be down to, it's kind of, they're saying woodwose when what they really mean is, you mean a bandit, yeah. an outlaw. And some of it might just be a case of, uh, how do we make this more thrilling? Because otherwise we've just got this big hairy monkey creature that just happens to live in the woods. Yeah, absolutely. Really do anything. <laughs> so medieval titillation, yeah. basically. So sightings have continued until the current day. And again, there is too, there's, there's too many of them for us to go into. Um, there are many in Scotland. Uh, but there's one back in 1982 in Lancashire. Uh, Deborah Hatswell, then 15, bunked off school to go to Buell Park, which was then very overgrown, with a friend. She caught movement at the corner of her eye, and when she turned, she saw a tall ape-like creature covered in thick brown hair like a chimps. It had large amber eyes and big square teeth, like a human's but much larger and blunter. It frightened the girls so much that they screamed and ran away. There's actually quite a bit more to that mm. account, and people can dig around for it if, they, if they're interested. Um, I found it really interesting that that encounter kind of haunted Deborah for her entire life, as in it sort of shook wow. her faith in the essential steadiness of reality, in the sense of I'm in... I think the thing is, if you see something like that, and it kind of proves that, yeah, you're in the UK, but guess what? There are yeah. things out there that have... You know, you've been told they're not there, but they are, in fact, there. Even a highly subjective encounter like that, it can then make you quite yeah it, it's, it's an eerie feeling i think it can make you sort of question everything um particularly i mean she was a teenage girl as well so she was already questioning things having to question the nature of reality <laughs> she understood on top of that probably yeah. did haunt her that that would have i mean it would have actually been really so. scary particularly again because if you think of the uncanniness of it all yes yeah, something looking at you with almost human intelligence it's about six foot tall and built like a gorilla. Yeah, that would yeah, be that's, terrifying. <laughs> that is, that's potentially quite a scary thing. Yeah. So um, anyway, there are many other sightings across the UK and in Ireland. So, <laughs> case for and against. Um, well, medieval medicine was actually pretty sophisticated. Uh, they would certainly be able to tell an ape from a human. Um, or a different species of human, I would say. Yes, definitely. Um, we imbibe from the teat of medieval people didn't know anything. It was the Dark Ages because they didn't know anything. 
um, the, the reality is that there isn't there are areas where there's just not much surviving record um, but where we have been able to recover record medieval medicine was pretty damn sophisticated mm. they had fillings for teeth they had an early form of plastic surgery for skin grafting um, they could certainly set bones they understood things like they mean you know obviously they didn't have microscopes because they couldn't make the glass that fine but they did understand things like infection and keeping clean and washing your hands all stuff which got lost in subsequent centuries and everybody kind of judges their me medieval medicine by the fact that during the sort of 15 to yeah. 1700s people were very dirty indeed and they assumed that we've always been like that and it's just not true unfortunately we went we took a really retrograde step, um, some of which was down to the church as well, unfortunately. <laughs> or more specifically, it was down to the Puritans. Uh, so I think it's not unreasonable to say that they would be able to tell the difference between something that mm. was vaguely humanoid but clearly not human, even if it was covered in hair, and something that wasn't. So there may well have been something living Waterways, if you want to call it that, or a wild man of the woods. Yes, um, it is. It is always possible. Um, you know, that being said, uh, some conditions such as um, uh, hypertrichosis. I can never say this. Hypertrichosis. Thank you. Hypertrichosis was sometimes mistaken for woodwows during the later centuries, and you know we do actually have accounts of people. Um, who also would in fact there are accounts of people in courts and stuff like that who had hypertrichosis yes yeah absolutely um, uh for those who don't know what hypertrichosis is by the way <laughs> um it is a condition which causes you to basically um grow a lot of hair um all over your body yeah um and as i said there are cases of people with hypertrichosis uh, hypertrichosis um who actually sort of lived in courts and stuff like that um and you know also of people who were considered to be curiosities and things like that um but yes uh we definitely you know it's it's definitely worth considering that there might very well have been some people and also i think the other thing with it is that it is it's a genetic yes it um, is quite a it's quite a rare one, but it can be hereditary. Yeah. As I mean, basically, check out our Beauty and the Beast episode. We did go into it in relative yeah, detail. Yeah, we did. There. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, uh, so, you know, it is it is possible that you would actually... There could have at some point been a family who did have this. And basically, there was a parent who had it. And some of their children then also had it. That's entirely possible. Yes. On the other hand, the case file of evidence on Bigfoot is so huge and complete that it only needs a living or dead specimen to act as conclusive evidence. Yep. Uh, there's obviously a lot of controversy on this and a lot of people arguing, but there is evidence from all over the world, from all these different places that have this long history of sort of Bigfoot primate type yeah. creatures, um, which suggests that at some point there was actually a genuine cryptid um, possibly even a a human relation if you like somewhere on the evolutionary yeah. tree um which was still living wild up until yeah. fairly recently 
and you think well how could you possibly have that in the uk the uk is populous and you know everything's civilized we don't have anything bigger than a badger and the thing is that's just not true um because while the uk is relatively small much of the land is still wilderness the population is concentrated in specific areas which gives a false perception of just how crowded the uk is much land is privately owned as and is uninterrupted by development having remained unchanged for thousands of years so you know when we've talked about things like alien big cats etc um yeah we're pretty damn sure they're out there there's enough sightings and footage etc um that there's a big panther that keeps turning up around gloucestershire yeah and it's because a lot of the area is rural it's privately owned most people don't have access to it and ergo we don't really see it yeah but it's there yeah um i mean Adding to which, as, as Jules kind of touched on, most recent studies have shown that several species of early humans didn't die out as early as we thought they did. Um, so uh, Meganthropus and Homo erectus. Um, so it could just be possible that there are other species of humans that are still alive and living in hiding um in parts of the sort of the wilderness that we haven't you know that we just haven't properly documented yet yeah i will admit i do have a little bit of a knee-jerk maybe not in the uk prejudice because i clearly can't entirely get my head around all that early programming about how the uk is really small which is small in comparison to places like Canada. Um, but it's big enough to have these huge tracts of wilderness where you could actually have something living yeah. out there. It's not entirely different. But I, I will say that, yeah, if you want to take me to somewhere like Canada and say, we've probably got Bigfoot out there somewhere, I'm like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say you're completely wrong. There could be an unknown species of primate out there. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly I think also when you get to sort of sort of mountainous regions and things like that where you start to get you know tales of yetis and stuff like that it starts it, it does feel kind of believable actually yeah um but yeah we we do have to remind ourselves that there is a lot of there is a lot of the uk which most people just will never enter um and that might not have yeah. actually been trodden on by you know looked at by humans for a very long time if you think actually that there there are large areas of the uk which have been owned by a family a single family for hundreds of years what is the chance that that family has walked you know that whole area or has even been to some of that area yeah you know um so it is possible um i i'm in two minds about it um but I'm, i'm always willing to say anything's possible yeah i mean i if you actually came up with some not you personally madeline although if you want to I'm, 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 <laughs> thanks I'm for the pressure <laughs> <laughs> but no if someone sort of came up with more than and i'm not going to discount subjective accounts because whatever happened it was something that was important to that person in that moment and it will have changed your perception of things yeah so it doesn't necessarily make it make it true or make it real but it makes it real to that yeah. person um, and I'm not throwing that out because something clearly happened. However, if they come up with evidence of, of these sort of creatures in in the UK or anywhere, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go I'm not gonna be one of these people who absolutely refuses to look at the evidence because it's impossible because I've decided yeah, how absolutely. the world should be kind of thing. Okay, that brings us on to our third one. Um, and Farleth Moore. 
which is our second candidate for British Bo Bookfoot, <laughs> Bigfoot, British Bigfoot, um, which is a Scottish cryptid. Um, so Anfalia Moore, um, am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah, um, or the Big Grey Man, um, has a slightly more spooky history. Yeah. So he is a mountain dweller, specifically um, Ben Makhthu, uh, which has high levels of fog and consequently a full sighting is a rarity, although there are numerous stories from hikers, climbers and backpackers about being stalked by a huge creature. Um, there are some actually really kind of funny stories with that and we'll, we'll get into that later. Um, now, yeah. it's said to be uh, an eight-foot biped, vaguely humanoid, except in the face, which is very definitely not human. And that's an interesting bit. Um, it's covered in thick grey fur, and it walks and runs upright. Yes. The normal pattern of an encounter is that a hiker will feel as if they were being stalked, as if something is following them. There are heavy footfalls that are not quite concealed or timed correctly with the walker's own footsteps. So the fact that they're timed at all so that they're partially concealed would suggest some sort of intelligence, which is quite terrifying if you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, on becoming aware of being stalked and trying to get away, the grey man then chases the hiker. Uh, the, the encounters themselves are described as terrifying to the mm -hmm. individual. Um, other sensations include echoing footsteps, a strange weight of fear, a negative energy, which includes despair, sudden cold, and the sensation of something brushing the observer's skin. Um, one thing which is particularly unique is that suicidal thoughts also affect some people, as well as a sense of extreme panic. Um, now, we're getting into... We're unless we're suggesting that this is uh, a cryptid with some sort of psychic abilities. Um, you know, mm -hmm. again, yeah. never say never, but it gets more unlikely the further out you go, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Then this is where we sort of cross into, is it a cryptid or is it folklore, ghost haunting type yeah. territory? So, I mean, some people believe it's not a cryptid, but the spirit of the mountain itself or the guardian of a portal um, if people don't know what I mean by spirit of the mountain, I have to say there are lots of places. There's um, there's Constitution Hill in Aberystwyth, for example, which is it has the reason it's called Constitution Hill is quite a lot of people have died on it. Yeah, <laughs> um, you have to have a good constitution to get up it. Uh, but the idea is that you would ask the blessing of the spirit of the hill before you try climbing it, so you reach the top in one piece. It's kind of the same with a lot of mountains, both in Wales and Scotland, also Ireland as well. Um, I'm not sure about the whole Guardian of a Portal thing, although that is a damn mm -hmm. cool idea yep. for a book. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the idea of a spirit of a place is not unusual. I mean, you think about it, it's kind of almost folk memory at this point where you would ask the blessing of a pool or a stream or a well or a, a moor, Dartmoor, for example, the North Yorkshire moors, all of these places are supposed to have their own individual yeah. sort of genius loki. Yeah. <laughs> So um, let's talk a little bit about some of the sightings. Um, so sightings are usually around the mountain, but they've also occurred um, in Roth, Rothfem, oh. Rothy Mercus. Thank you very much. <laughs> Rothy Mercus Forest. Scottish. In Aberdeen. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> in, in Aberdeen, yeah. 
Uh, now, in 1925, uh, Professor J. Norman Colley said for every um, three steps he took, he heard crashing footsteps that were not his own. He was speed walking at a normal pace, but the footsteps were coming closer and closer. Um, and eventually the fear was just too much and he sprinted away. Yeah, which you, if you think about it, I mean, yes, there's a there's a humorous element to this. You can play it in your mind as something that's quite funny. Having said yeah. that, if you think about it, you're walking through this fog enshrouded mountain and yeah. something is following you and you become, you start thinking it's just an echo and then you think yeah. actually, no, something is actually genuinely following me. We've still got that that part of the brain which says that something is stalking us we still remember being prey and yeah. suddenly you'll prey again and then the fear gets too much this weight of fear that comes down on you sends you into headlong panicked flight that's a very dangerous thing to happen on a mountain yeah absolutely one of my favorite accounts with regards to this cryptid and um, and of course, now that I'm thinking about it, I cannot remember the name, but it was a Victorian gentleman. Now, uh, during the period, um, you know, as we've we, we've discussed, interest in folklore and stuff like that, but also an interest in kind of maps making and um, basically actually really taking accounts um, and marking out areas which, you know, people knew about. So, um, like sort of scottish mountains etc um and it was a victorian gentleman who was part of a sort of a mountaineering club um and he went up uh ben Mahdu and um he encountered this creature the this gray man um in so much as yeah he had this terrible sense um he heard the footsteps he very much didn't enjoy the experience he then came down the mountain and he never said a word he never told anyone about it until decades later um because he thought you'd be laughed at because he this was a he was a man of science he was a you know a very rational rational person didn't believe in the supernatural or anything like that um and many many years later he was at his club um you know at, at this sort of mountaineering club and the only thing he said is um i uh I'm not very fond of Ben Makdu. There is um, there is something peculiar about it, and I will not climb it again. And he was very surprised when a whole bunch of the other mountaineers went, "Oh yeah, <laughs> never again. Oh yeah, we never, we never do that again." And oh, it's God, one of my yeah. favorite things. That he's like, "Well, everyone will think I'm crazy," and that that the, all of them collectively like. <laughs> tense of them it all had a weird experience and went i'm not telling anyone about this and then just an offhand comment and they were all like oh yeah no, no, no definitely we're, we're never going up there again that's great um there's another encounter in rotten Marcus <laughs> forest which is a bit more recent um it was reported by three men who'd been hiking they saw a huge gray human-like creature with an eerie inhuman face that's their words on another occasion, they happened on the creature again. So they, they not only saw it once, they went back again. Um, and this time it chased them to their car and tried to get in. It then chased the car, reaching a speed of 45 miles per hour before they lost it. I love the 
implication of it trying to get in because I, I realize you know that that's actually quite a scary concept you know in that it's it's sort of reaching for them in the car yeah. but all i can think of in my mind is that they get in the car and it's just sort of like tries to sort of tries, ooh, to, <laughs> tries <laughs> well it just tries to sit into you know like how when people get into cars they open it they just stick their butt in and they try and take sort of take a seat and i just imagine this creature like oh well, <laughs> well don't mind if i do <laughs> <laughs> with everyone else screaming um yes that is a terrifying uh, concept yes so i mean i i know people say oh you know climbers they go a bit crazy and yeah, there is something to the fact that if you climb high enough obviously the oxygen concentration in the air starts to yeah get and thin. altitude sickness um, is a recognized you know uh, yeah phenomena it, it, it is an issue and you know, one of the signs of it early on is when you're camping, you start getting very strange nightmares and then you start getting the nightmares when you're awake kind of thing. So I'm not going to rule that out completely. Yeah. One of the other signs of altitude sickness is that people who have, who do experience it, do get the sense that there is someone else with them. Usually it's actually a quite a friendly presence, yeah. um, but there is a lot of documentation of mountaineers and stuff like that who basically described the sensation of basically feeling like there was someone else beside them. Um, and I also know this because my my dad um, loves to climb mountains. You know, he's done uh, climbed Mont Blanc and, uh, twice and, and, you know, done various others. And he's talked about some of what he experienced when he got altitude sickness so it isn't a just a oh i guess it's a sort of thing no it, it it's a recognized thing so we do have to consider that actually this might just be altitude sickness um mixing in with the fog and a general sense of kind of unease that comes with being on a mountain and not being able to see where you're going yeah although i have to say the sort of more supernatural aspects to me feel from what I've read, more like a haunting mm. or a, where you go to a place and it just doesn't want you there. Yeah, completely agree. Um, so anyway, the case for or against it being real or a cryptid, well, you know, I think it's probably real in some respect in the sense of it is a real experience that people have yeah. had. Um, in terms of is there a wild man living on the mountain? Well, if we're going to say that wood woes could potentially be real, then why not? Yeah. <laughs> In the, in, under the same circumstances the same potential evidence and accounts um, but when you mingle it with the supernatural aspects to me that feels far more like a combination of as Madeline has said maybe altitude sickness but also something to do with when you go really out mm. into the wild in nature bits of your brain that you don't use yeah. in everyday life flicker on and they start giving you signals that you don't know what to do with and your brain is a modelling system and it will make sense of it the best way it can, which means it will take the signals that it's getting and it will try and paint you a picture that you can understand because it's got no frame of reference for it. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it is just genuinely you feel like you're not wanted there because your brain is telling you you're not really safe. Yeah. The other thing is that how sound changes, particularly in, in misty kind of areas. I have been up on mountains uh during thick fogs and mists um and it's actually terrifying it really really is um you can't see that far ahead of you um and i i do remember being up in the mountains um 
unable to see more than sort of a couple of meters in fact not even really a couple of meters in front of me i could see my dad because he was wearing a red a bright red jacket so i could make him out just as this red shape but i couldn't make out any kind of features or anything else like that and while we were there we could hear avalanches happening around us um, and we had no concept of where yeah. they were. They could have actually been a fair distance away. They could have been small. They could have been large. We really, really couldn't tell at all. And it was terrifying. Um, and if you think about the way that sounds can echo, particularly sort of in rocky terrain and things like that, um, when you have your sight taken away from you in that way... Um, it really, really suddenly gets very hard to pinpoint sound, even though you don't use your sight for sound, if that makes sense. Um, so a whole combination yes. of stuff is that I really do believe that you can sort of, an atmosphere can be very easily created um, in those conditions, which feels very menacing. And when combined with altitude sickness and stuff like that, um, and also when combined with you know particularly if you if you're already aware of certain stories or certain reputation it's very easy to kind of make those connections i'm not saying that the people who kind of had the experiences were lying or that they weren't being you know that they allowed themselves to be tricked um i'm saying that i think that a lot of these people had very real experiences um but the exact cause and nature of them i think is more likely to be natural rather than supernatural. But then again, I'm not, I'm never going to say that's impossible um, because sometimes a place just does have a presence for whatever reason. Okay, so let's get on to <laughs> one of my favorites, the Owl Man. <laughs> yes, um, this is a Cornish cryptid, first sighting investigated near Mornan, which by the infamous Tony Dock Shields, which was in the 1970s. Um, just so yes. people are aware, Dock Shields was a famous, or shall we say infamous, um, <laughs> he was both a stage magician and a TV magician and also a practitioner of the occult. Um, mm hmm. He, I mean, if you've, if you've read any Harker Blackthorne, then you'll know because I've mentioned him before. Um, but just yeah. for those who haven't, he was <laughs> he was involved in the Loch Ness Muppet incident, <laughs> whereby he did some occult practice to summon the Loch Ness Monster, and what came out was a strange tentacled type thing. And it looked so unreal that people called it the Loch Ness Muppet. Um, yes. That's a very condensed <laughs> version of that story, but look it up, it's very funny. And then there was another thing where he was um, calling up the Cornish sea serpent Morgawa, um, yeah. which means little giant <laughs> um, or sea giant. And he didn't, basically, he had his wife, daughter, and someone else, another woman. They were all doing the ritual sky clad, so, which might explain why it was so well publicised in the local papers. Yeah. Uh, you get naked women dancing around, suddenly people want to take photographs yeah. for some reason. Um, they didn't actually manage to summon Morgauer out of the sea. However, weird psychic activities, poltergeist activities, um, and sightings of sea serpents around that area. And there's like the Morgauer Mile between Lizard Point and Falmouth, whereby you see many, many sightings of huge mm. sea type creatures, huge sea monsters, um, just sort of went through the roof over the following six or 12 months. 
he was a trickster he did enjoy pulling the wool over people's eyes and the problem is because he enjoyed doing that and there were times yeah. when he was absolutely caught doing it the few times when he may have genuinely meant it and genuinely been onto something are cast into doubt because we know he yeah. liked tricking people he liked the uh, con well he was an entertainment guy wasn't he <laughs> Okay, so the Owlman yes. um, seems to be the British answer to the US Mothman. Uh, a nocturnal humanoid creature with huge wings. Um, so, <laughs> let's get on to some of the sightings. Yep. So, uh, there was an Owlman <laughs> sighting um, in April 1976, where two young girls saw a huge winged human creature hovering over the church tower um, in Malnan. Now, what's interesting is that they didn't go, oh, an angel, they went, an owl man. <laughs> That's the thing. We didn't get the report directly from them. Allegedly, they told Doc Shields what they'd seen, mm -hmm. but he kept their name out of it. And Suspicious. they didn't say, <laughs> the fact that they didn't say an owl man, that was something he seems to have taken from whatever account they gave to him. That's really strange. I mean, I think when you hear Owl Man, you immediately go to that's ridiculous, <laughs> don't you? Um, but the thing is, there are lots of sightings of winged humanoid type creatures around the UK. I've just picked the most, yeah. the most well-known um, one. Of course, there is uh, another one actually in the same year, um, in July, uh, uh, by a 14-year-old girl named Sally Chapman, who was camping with her friend uh, Barbara Perry um, in the woods near the church. Uh, so I believe it's the same church. Uh, they were standing outside their tent when they saw an yep. owl-like human with pointed ears and red glowing eyes, which rose up into the air, revealing taloned feet. Um, two further account encounters were reported over the next two years as well. Yeah, um, and because Doc Shields acted as an intermediary or advisor on all of those encounters, unfortunately it kind of casts doubt on the whole thing even if you're not already doubting the fact of a yeah. winged humanoid creature <laughs> yeah. um, but then there was an independent encounter which was reported in 1989 it was a young man called Gavin who was camping with his girlfriend in the same sort of area yeah. you'd think people would know better um, they saw this uh, a creature of about 5 feet tall with huge wings pointed ears, glowing eyes definitely reflective glowing mm -hmm. eyes and when it rose into the air it showed a feet with like a high heel and not a high heel shoe, <laughs> a high heel, so like animal-like foot, um, with a huge clawed right. toe, is what they saw. Uh, there was another encounter reported in 1995 by a Chicago tourist, which follows much the same lines. So let's talk about the case for and against Owl Man. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, uh, firstly, Doc Shields providing uh, the first couple of accounts um, immediately sort of throws them under the bus a little bit it makes them quite suspect yes um, secondly as, um, as far as plausible <laughs> evolutionary specimens go uh not very likely yeah i think that's the thing i'm not that there's this whole theory about the aquatic ape i don't know if you've heard yeah, of the aquatic have, ape theory yeah. again it's the moment um but it's basically we evolve in directions that give us an advantage when we're yeah. procreating so if it doesn't make things easier for the animal in the interim and it doesn't make things easier for the animal to procreate and pass its genes on it's mm. not a useful 
evolutionary development. There isn't really any useful evolutionary development for a human-type creature to develop wings. Um, and there would have to be so many mutations for that to take place if we're saying that the basic start is yeah. kind of a humanoid-type creature. So we're either looking at something yeah. that is very, very supernatural, or we are looking at someone misidentifying a, a rare but, you know, perfectly mundane animal. Um, they did see lots of what well, they did see a few Eurasian eagle owls in the area, yeah. which can get very big. They do have reflective eyes and pointed heads and big clawed toes, strangely enough. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's not likely in Mornham in Cornwall because they need cliffs and things in order to be able to take off. Having said that, I think it's slightly more likely than owl. Man. Yeah. Um, and there are, oh God, I've just forgotten what the name of the bird is. But there is this massive bird of prey. Do you mean the uh, harpy eagle? I think it might be the harpy eagle. Um, they are absolutely huge. They're like my size. Um, yeah, the harpy eagle, which <laughs> if you've ever looked at a harpy eagle, like seriously, Google it now and look at its face. There is something about looking at a harpy eagle where you're just there like, it looks like a man wearing a bird suit. <laughs> Yeah, it, it does. It, it, it's, it's too big to be believable almost. But yeah. it's kind of a throwback to the time when actually birds ruled the earth, you know, between the dinosaurs and the yeah. mammals. Um, so it is actually kind of very possible um, that rather than it being a, a man, as it were, um, that it is just a very, it was a very, very large bird that perhaps um, got lost and was just nesting or hanging around that church for a little while. And then came back every now and again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a few people caught sightings of it. I think that that's entirely plausible. Um, birds get lost all the time. It's also not entirely impossible that somebody had an eagle yeah. owl as a pet. And either lost it or released it into the wild, which was a thing that happened quite a lot during the 1970s. Um, when they brought in the Dangerous Breeds Act, or Dangerous um, Dangerous Animals Act. And you went... Yeah. Which is obviously also a lot of how we explain, um, uh, you know, um, a lot of big cats and things like that, where people just went whoop into the wild. It's like I'm go. not paying that amount of money to keep my dangerous leopard, etc. I'll just release it into the wild. Nature will take care of it, and then it breeds, and you've got an entire population of them. Um, yes, yeah. what happened? <laughs> okay, right. Our our next one, Igwilchki. Also known as the Dog of Darkness or the Devil's Own Hound. Uh, this comes from the word either Gwilch, which means uh, twilight or darkness, or Gwilt, which means wild. Um, I might have that the wrong way around. And Gi or Ku, which actually means hound or dog. Yep. Um, so this is a Welsh one, in case people have not gathered that from my, <laughs> my appalling Welsh there. Um, it's described as a monstrous black dog the size of a four winters old pony with glowing red eyes. It hunts along deserted roadsides at night and comes upon solitary travellers. Yeah. Now, obviously, the UK has hundreds of black dog stories, including Black Shuck and The Grim and many, many more, which some of which we've kind of touched on before. Um, but we've never really covered um, the, the Gwilki, uh, which makes this one different in that it crosses from folklore to modern sightings. There are hundreds of sightings of this specific black dog. 
Now, in oral tradition, uh, they go back to the Middle Ages, um, and they're actually first written down, um, you know, I think it was it's the 1800s that we get the first sort of written account, um, and continue to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, with the, the whole 1800s it being written down thing, once again, we come to the, the folklore gap where yeah. it became fashionable to collect folk tales. And, uh, yes, and actually start noting these things down instead of just going, well, that happened. Let's never talk about it again until I'm very drunk in a pub. It's like, oh, your cousin Bronwyn sort of black kind of thing. It's quite common. Um, sightings range across North Wales, specifically on the Nankigath Pass and the Clandegla uh, in Denbyshire, stretching as far as the border town of Wrexham, just outside of which is a village called Marchville, which boasts um, in, in which which boasts the Lonyborbachdu, which is the Lane of the Black Spectre, so named because the Gwilchgi was so often sighted running along it. Um... <laughs> which um, I I love that I think that's great to be honest that's really quite like there is the um, the big black dog uh, on the border of Devon and Dorset which again I wrote a story about and there is a a, it's called Black Dog Lane so if you're in anywhere in England and it's Black Dog Lane or anything like that or then the chances are it's because there is a Black Dog legend attached to the area and you might want to check in Stick around, yeah. (laughs) Try the lane. Though maybe first check out what the myth (laughs) is because the Black Dog could either be friendly or it could be Black Shuck. So uh, just worth thinking about. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Yes. Um, Okay. Right. Uh, There's all sorts of stories and I will talk about a more recent account but the story I first encountered the Gwilkki in is one that doesn't seem to have um, I mean, it, it is written down, but it's not as common. Mm. So I'm going to say it because it was actually a very entertaining one. Um, back when I lived in Wales, we I was on the karate team and I used to drive with the rest of the squad all the way through the mountains into Welsh Pool in order to um, do training on a Sunday. And we train all day and then battered and bruised, we drive back through the mountains in the dark. Um, and this is pre-iPhone, etc., um, and sometimes the radio Excellent. signal was not great so we would sometimes entertain each other nope. by telling ghost stories in the car <laughs> don't recommend that when you're driving through the Welsh mountains in hindsight but it was fun at the time um, that's where I first heard this one and basically we're, t- we're looking at the North Wales sort of area an old woman lived apart from her village out in a cottage on the edge of the woods um, and she didn't really like company that much and people only really bothered her when they wanted yeah. some sort of herbal remedy so very typical sort of old woman lives away from society kind of thing um, it came about that there was a rumour that she had a great store of silver in her house that she was very wealthy and when she died there would be a lot of money um, three very idle young men who were drinking in a tavern one evening heard this and so why should we wait until she's died? She's out there by herself. We could just mm-hmm. take the money from her. So uh, fortified with ale, they all went down to the old woman's cottage. Um, now, on that evening, the old woman had gone out to shut her hens in and looked up and on the road ahead of her. She saw a huge black hound with glowing red eyes and she knew it for the Gwilki. And she backed away towards the door summoning her courage and saying you'll have me when i'm good and ready and not before and she went back into her house and she was obviously quite frightened because when the gwilki turns up it means you're about to die 
and it's either going to take you itself or something terrible is going to happen to you. You get an ugly death with the Gwilki, basically, because it is the devil's dog. Um, the three young men clearly didn't see the Gwilki when they came upon her house and they forced their way in and they knocked her about a bit and tried to force her to tell them what the silver was. She couldn't do this because there was no silver. It didn't exist. Um, they were not going to accept that as an answer. And they got so far as almost breaking one of her arms. And finally, she remembered that the Gwilki was outside. So she sent one young man out to dig under the oak tree because that was where she'd hidden it. And he left his friends to keep an eye on the tricksy old, the tricksy old woman. Um, after he'd been out there for a while, uh, the second man got a bit nervous and said, you know, what's going on? And she's like, oh, I'm such a silly old woman. You know what? I've forgotten. I actually left it on the other side of my garden under the willow. And so you need to go and find your friend and go and dig under the willow. That's where mm -hmm. the silver is. I'd completely forgotten I'd moved it. So consumed with greed, the second young man goes out. And then a long time passed. And by this point, the third young man is sweating bullets because his two friends have just disappeared. And uh, he starts shaking the old woman saying, what, what have you done? What's going on? Um, and she laughs in his face and says, if you can't see, then you are stupider by far than I am. She said, your friends have gone and they've dug up the silver and they've decided it'll divide perfectly nicely between two people. Why should they share it with a third? And they've taken it and they've gone and it's probably half spent already. And the third young man was so angry, he ran out into the yard, into the jaws of the Gwilki. And at which point, the old woman stood on the doorstep, looked at the, <laughs> looked at the devil's own hound and said, there, you've had three souls, you're not getting mine as well, and shut the door. <laughs> and that was that, it left her alone. I love it. That's, <laughs> That's a great story. So uh, tricking the devil's own dog into taking someone else, not yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want a more recent sighting, uh, you're probably familiar with the poet Dylan mm -hmm. Thomas, you know, Rage, Rage Against the Dying of yeah. the Light. And he wrote a lot of his poetry at the Boathouse in Carmarthen. Um, that's now a place where you can visit, you can stay overnight, um, and there's, there's all sorts of other things going on. It's quite a strange area and it's got lots of spooky happenings. Um, but it's also well known for being a haunt of the Gwilki and what is noticed uh, this this particular account I can't give names because I, I wasn't given them I don't know um, but the boathouse itself is obviously a, a large building yeah. it's not actually a boathouse <laughs> but they have somebody on duty all the time and there was uh, a man who was acting as kind of night porter and on his break he stopped and went into the recreation room and put on a film and as he was watching it he said he was in this weird almost dreamlike state and suddenly he went absolutely cold absolutely frozen cold the air was frigid everything stopped and he wanted to move but he couldn't move and finally he heard a howl from outside because that's the other thing the Gwilki had a, hound, a howl so terrible it freezes you to the spot it, in some stories it actually makes the person die of fright and he sort of cut his eyes towards the uncurtained window and as he watched a huge black hound prowled across the grounds outside and it was only an encounter that took five minutes and then it sort of it was over the cold and the fear and everything just lifted and a few weeks later, the same thing happened again. 
and it's happened several times now mm -hmm. and in the end he'd come to the point where he said you know it's minding its own business so i'm going to mind mine but when he compared experiences lots of people had seen this big black hound prowling through it and had the same cold and um sort of fear and frozenness being not being able to move type experience and they all believed it to be the Gwilki going about its business that's terrifying but also awesome <laughs> yeah but those reports go up to sort of the early 90s um, and I think there are some that are in the 2000s so it's still yeah. happening in this area so okay um, true cryptid or not well, I'm not going to rule out the idea that there might be a big black dog that's running straight around North Wales. <laughs> yeah, always possible. Or that if it's not a dog, it's actually a big cat that has been mistaken for a dog. Yep. Um, but given the supernatural elements, um, I suspect it's more of a ghost snorry um, than a, you know, than a cryptid. Or, or that there might actually be a genuine cryptid in that there might be a big black dog or a big black cat around the area um and the sort of the story the stories have intermixed with one another yeah definitely it is noticeable that while uh the Gwilki does have similarities with things like um the grim and uh padfoot and galley trot etc all the other big black dogs it's a bit more like mm. black shuck in the sense that it has its own malevolent agenda and it does seem to be quite a supernatural creature in all its iterations in folklore and all yeah. the stories it turns up in. It's definitely not no, a um, and that creature. is kind of interesting. Uh, but what's also sort of interesting is the idea that uh, again we and I can't believe I've, I've managed to to sort of stay. It, it doesn't cross thresholds. It's a bit fairy, you know. Um, yeah, it does. It'll come up on you as you're travelling at night yeah. alone. But the and fact that the old woman could shut the door or, or that if someone was in the house, they could hear it, but it's not going to come in. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Although, you know, there's stories of the Gwilki howling outside and then that night yeah. it's a bit like a banshee where the person then dies and then the next one. There is one where the Gwilki does come inside, but I think it was invited by someone by accident. I don't know thought it was a stray dog. They invited the Gwilki in and it went upstairs to where the sick man was lying um, unable mm. to die I think the story goes I'd have to check this but again it's another Welsh one um, he was old he was very sick he was in a lot of pain the Gwilki turned up um, and he was actually quite glad to see it because it meant he was going to die finally yeah but generally that most people a, don't yeah. want a visit from one <laughs> For, from one no <laughs> but yeah I think this is this is a classic folklore type ghost story and perhaps as you say there's a real cryptid but the real cryptid is a stray dog or something and the supernatural elements have been attached to it yeah okay so our last one for today uh is the mowing devil <laughs> i love this and i have to say i love these uh 17th century sensationalist pamphlets mm. i've really really enjoyed looking and reading at the reading them it's kind of like you know the sort of supermarket type um, magazines mm -hmm. you get where it's like UFOs, dingoes at my baby yeah. kind of thing. It's it's the 17th century. Yeah, I, I do love them as well. It's 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 the old witch accounts as well. It's like the headless bear and whatnot. <laughs> it always gets yes. me. Um, so uh, this is very definitely a folkloric account um, appearing in one of those 17th century sensationalist pamphlets. Um, 
so uh, in 1678, a farmer refused to pay a labourer the price requested to mow his meadow. Always a bad start. Um, saying he would rather the devil <laughs> mowed it himself. Very bad thing to say. <laughs> Don't be careful what you yeah. wish for. <laughs> so that night, his field appeared to be on fire. When he went to investigate it in the morning, the field was found to be perfectly mowed. The hay stacked, and the farmer left anxious as to what price the devil was going to ask for this work. Yeah. Now, I strongly suggest people go and Google this pamphlet because the, the illustration, the woodcut on the front is absolutely classic. It's a little devil <laughs> who's mowed in a circle, or rather sort of an oblong, yeah. a long lozenge type shape. And it's just, it's kind of cute rather than scary um, to us anyway. Uh, what makes it interesting to me is how it sort of echoes older law sources. So, you know, things like the original Boggart, Mm -hmm. um, which was a shape changer, but, you know, don't assume the Harry Potter thing necessarily. Yeah. Boggarts had a real thing for crops. So they certainly did an Irish myth, and I think they did an Old English myth before it sort of changed and mingled with other things, um, and hobs and things where you kind of make a bargain with them and they do something for you and then you don't want to pay yeah. them or you trick them into giving more than, than you're getting. So it echoes that. Um and then it, it's kind of yeah. this pamphlet has been picked up by modern crop circle enthusiasts because of this, <laughs> this devil mowing the grass in his lozenge shape as evidence of an early cropped circle, sort of a 14th, 16th century crop circle. And, you know, I've seen crop circles and I've seen ones that have clearly been faked and ones that are a bit sort of like, OK, I don't know why the corn is doing that, mm. but it is actually quite eerie. Uh, we had quite a lot of crop circles in Dorset when I was growing up. Um, but this is very definitely a case of, no, the grass was cut. It's never cut in a crop circle. Also, clue is in the title, so it happens with crops, not just grass. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I understand the enthusiasm. Yeah. You see something, you think, but it's been going on for centuries. Look at this. And you get really excited. And But, um, yeah. no. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I'm always... I'm always happy to, whenever I see crop circles, I'm always happy to go, why do you assume it comes from the sky yeah. and not below the ground? Fairies. Anyway. Um... <laughs> Maybe we'll do crop circles um, another time, because there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> we'll do crop, yeah, because there's a lot to unpack there, yeah. Now, um, obviously, since this is set in Hertfordshire, um, it also calls to mind the practice of crying the mare um, and the reason such folk customs were practised. Um... Again, crying the mare is kind of a custom that's more to do with crops, but it has been used for sort of mowing as well. Um, the mm -hmm. idea was that, you know, when people would go out and they would gather crops with a scythe, um, mm -hmm. and then it would be the entire family working, so you'd have whoever was strong enough to wield the scythe uh, cutting the corn down, then you'd have people coming up behind tying it into bundles. Um, you'd have the children and the the old people who were a bit weaker and not as fast picking up the loose ears and things and then shaking them in in loose baskets and yeah and what have you to get rid of chaff and to you know basically to catch all the leavings and they would get paid a certain amount each for that that would be their own money so it was an entire community effort the yeah. harvest um the practice of crying the mare was when you got to the last sheaf and it was sort of tied so that it had four legs yeah. like a little horse and then the people who wielded the scythes would practice by throwing the scythes 
across the field at it and whoever whoever cut the mare free would then get to right. say who the mare was visiting and what the practice was was that the the mare the barley mare would then be taken to whoever had left their crops or their hay mm. standing in their field too long as a sign of laziness and they had to host this barley mare in their homes and give it offerings until the following year otherwise you know great misfortune would come on them at the next harvest time but it was kind of like a community yeah we all need to be in this together and we think you're not pulling your weight here here have this eldritch creature to look after type thing yeah <laughs> obviously the, the person who managed to cut the mare down by throwing the scythe which is incredibly dangerous um would get get yeah. great good luck for the following year yeah absolutely um and there are a lot of kind of traditions which have to do with obviously the cutting of wheat and barley and um and all that jazz um across uh the country um so you you get this in in sort of uh, you get it in Wales, you get it in Cornwall, you get it um, basically all the way over where people had different traditions. Um, I do really love the idea of kind of <laughs> just this this little creature. That'll be one soul, please. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't mind doing it for cheap. I'll do it with magic and I'll make the field look like it's... I mean, the thing is, if you thought your crops were on fire, you'd go out and try and put the flames out because it would spread to everybody. Yeah. Um, but leaving that aside, um, cryptid or not, probably not, because most cryptids are, are misidentified animals yeah. anyway. Um, they definitely have their own agendas, but mowing grass isn't usually no, one No, absolutely of them. not. Particularly, you, you could very well have a cryptid which ate the grass, um, but not so much that would leave, you know, neat stacks of, of you know, bales or anything like that. <laughs> Yes, that's that's yeah. quite unlikely, um, but I like the story and I really love the pamphlet. Uh, you know, if the sort of thing interests you, go and look up that pamphlet because yeah. it is just really funny. <laughs> so that is our first six cryptids um, in uh, Britain and Ireland um, and the United Kingdom. Um, let us know what you've thought of these first sets and uh, do tune in next week where we will continue uh, with part two and another six cryptids. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe you've got one for us. Yes, um, I'm still on my urban fantasy kick, reading lots of other indie urban fantasy authors' mm -hmm. works. And I read one recently called Dragons Are a Girl's Best Friend. It's part of a three book series or a trilogy, as they are better known. Um, and it follows, it's, it's, it's set in a world where there has been a sort of magic cataclysm and magic people are out. Everybody has got something. It might be something that's really, really not very mm -hmm. useful at all, but everybody ended up with something. Uh, basically, the magic-wielding creatures decided that the best way to not be persecuted for having magic was to make everybody have magic. And that wasn't <laughs> the best idea ever. <laughs> The main character is this really, she's kind of a sweet, sunny, natured girl who is um, a, mm -hmm. a police official and her partner right. is an actual <laughs> dragon. <laughs> she's the only person this dragon will work with. And it's just really, really good fun. Honestly, it would have been just kind of like an average read for me, but I would have said it was good and recommended it to people. But she was adopted by her, like super sweet cinnamon roll kind of gay vampire adopted father 
and over the years he's adopted so many of these sort of orphaned magical humans and it's just it's so cute they have the most adorable relationship and he's just it, it's amazing <laughs> i'm like okay that bumps it right the way up the scale for me just because this that that's different and also the way it's done is just so adorable so that's dragons are a girl's best friend by isla frost and it i'm definitely going to read the rest of the series i recommend that one okay that sounds adorable definitely gonna check that out and on that note guys we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes for more information visit our facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com please note no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast